Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today I'm going to talk to Arthur J. Ray on his Champlain Society volume entitled From the Frozen Sea to Buffalo Country, The Life and Times of Henry Kelsey of the Hudson's Bay Company, 1887 to 1724. This volume was published in 2022 by the Champlain Society. Skip Ray is Professor Emeritus in the Department of History at the University of British Columbia. He is one of Canada's most noted historians of the fur trade, and his first book, Indians in the Fur Trade, that was published in 1974, remains essential reading. He has since published books on Indigenous treaties as well as Indigenous rights and legal claims. This is Professor Ray's second edited book for the Champlain Society. His first, Life and Death by the Frozen Sea, the York Factory Journals of James Knight, 1714 to 1717, was published by the Champlain Society in 2018. He is an officer of the Order of Canada and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Skip, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you. Pleased to be here. And so tell us, what motivated you to devote so much time to editing Henry Kelsey's journals, letters, and memoranda? Well, you mentioned Indians in the Fur Trade, which was an outgrowth of my doctoral thesis at the University of Wisconsin. And in doing research for that book, Henry Kelsey's journals were one of the first published primary sources I had access to. Being at Madison, uh, of course, there wasn't a lot of material readily accessible in the American universities. And so I read Henry Kelsey's journals. They had been edited in uh, the 1920s, and they reflected the interests of the time. Uh, Henry Kelsey uh, papers were got involved in the disputes between Hudson's Bay Company and some of its rivals in the mid-18th century. So the collection as edited focused on that sort of political historical interest. It was more about, it was edited more from the point of view of European slash Canadian non-native history. Mm -hmm. But when I did my dissertation research, I was really interested in trying to find out about the native participation in the fur trade. My doctoral thesis supervisor, who was a Manitoban by birth, had convinced me to do a Canadian topic. And I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, you can't do that. I said, well, why not? <laughs> he said, well, the native people didn't write anything. And I thought about that. Uh, but the thing is, if you use journals like Henry Kelsey, you can indirectly find out a lot about the economic life, at least, of Native people in those periods of time. So the Native people don't appear directly, they appear indirectly, um, although certain individuals who were central to the fur trade 
do appear occasionally by name. Um, so my interest in those journals then was to go back, go back and revisit them and re-edit what was available at the time from a from the point of view of uh, of an historical geographer, which is my background. And in addition to information about indigenous economic life, there's a lot in there. Early glimpses of different areas of Canada. And Henry Kelsey, because of his voyages, was, was the first to, he may not have always been the first in some areas to travel there, but he's the first to re leave a written record of having traveled there at a very, very early date. So I was interested in the historical geography of Aboriginal Canada at the time of initial European contacts. And his, his journals and the night journals, which you've mentioned, or a goldmine of information about those uh, those things. So I also discovered in the course of doing the research, of course, uh, most of my work was based in the Hudson's Bay Company archives, and I found in there the journals of Henry Kelsey that he wrote not for himself, but these were official journals kept for the company when he was commander at York Factory. So they were sort of official papers, um, and they were much more voluminous than the original Kelsey papers, which I think totaled less than 100 pages, you know, mm -hmm. manuscript. The Kelsey papers in HBC would go probably to thousands of pages. And so it was a much – and it gave us a picture of Henry Kelsey in his later life. The papers are Kelsey's early life. By early life, I would say pre-1700. right. And the post Kelsey papers are 1700 to 1724. So we see him as an older man, as a, as the senior most figure in the company in Canada. He's not a member of the governing committee, so he's not the senior most member of the company, but he's their senior representative in Canada in his last five years of service. So this gave us a chance to see two sides of Kelsey, and it offered insights into some of the assumptions that have been made about Kelsey based on his first publication. Well, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of Henry Kelsey? Who was he? And why do you think he was such a significant figure in Canada's pre-Confederation history? Well, Kelsey, I would have to say, compared to James Knight, his predecessor at the Post, is an elusive character. He was trained, he grew up, well, first of all, he was born about 1667. Uh, about 10 years later, the assumptions and, and interpretations of historians are that by then he was probably uh, serving as a captain's boy on ships on the east coast of uh, the, the British Isles. And um, his father was a captain in the Royal Navy. And so he grew up in a naval tradition. He was born and died in um, Greenwich, and he's buried in the Anglican church there, and they have a monument, um, a memorial to him on the wall there. Uh, so he was a Greenwicher by background, and he's out of a naval tradition, and that shows up in the way he keeps his journals. He basically writes in a cryptic ship log style, which provides the basic information that's expected and very little more. So he doesn't directly tell you much about himself. But it's clear that he was an ambitious fellow. He was quite willing to go on these short 
ex expeditions around the post at York Fort, which he came, he first arrived there in 1684, and he helped build the first York Fort. He was on a crew that did that. Uh, and he was twice captured by the French while he was there. Uh, and uh, so he... Uh, doesn't talk much about that experience, but he does, in his England journals, he does give you a glimpse here and there. One time he's traveling with, he's traveling with native guides, of course, because he didn't know the country. But one time he gets lost and he basically expresses how lonely and isolated he felt. Uh, and so you realize that he, he understands how dependent he is on indigenous people to get around, to live off the country, because he's still learning. Um, another in instance, he, uh, when he was at York Factory in the early years, he developed, uh, I guess what your fur trade historians have called kind of a country marriage with a native woman. And uh, that didn't work out. And he, he, he talks very, very briefly, I think in about three sentences, he, he, he laments the loss of this woman and how lonely he felt and so on and so forth. But then shortly thereafter, he goes back to uh, back to Greenwich, marries a woman, has a couple of kids, and uh, that's the end of that part of the story. Um, now, the, based on the early Kelsey papers, the assumption was that Kelsey preferred the company of native people, and he preferred to be away from the post as much as possible. Um, his later papers suggest that that's probably an overstatement, if if even accurate at all. I think he was quite willing to travel into the interior, take on this major expedition to the Saskatchewan, which he's famous for. Uh, but I think it also is because it tells us that he's an ambitious guy. He wants to advance in the company. The company was very eager to get men to go into the interior, but few, few were willing to do it. And I think another thing it tells us about Kelsey, he he did like the companionship of Native people, and he was willing to learn aspects of their culture, to put it mildly, I suppose, that were of use to him in advancing his career. So he learns Cree, and he has a facility for Cree. Uh, he, so he was one, probably one of the first men was fully bilingual other than the captain, other than the men that commanded the post, because you pretty well had to be at least fluent in Cree, because these posts were in uh, in swampy Cree territory, both in James Bay and Western Hudson's Bay. So they at least learned Cree. And I think it's clear that Kelsey probably had a smattering of Assiniboine, which was a northern dialect of, uh, of Siouan language. So he probably had that. I don't think he had much of a working knowledge of other languages, but he learned the language he needed because Cree was a lingua franca of the fur trade in the early days because the Cree controlled access to York Fort and they brought groups down to York Fort. So other native groups also were, could speak Cree and their own languages. So Cree allowed him, by learning Cree, you could use Cree interpreters to talk to, say, Assiniboine and some of the northern Athabascan groups, like the Chippewaian who came down there, and so forth. So so I would say, you know, that he's, I would say he's very much driven to, to get ahead, and he does. He makes it to the top of the Hudson's Bay Company post ladder before he retires or is basically, frankly, fired at the end of the day. <laughs>
Right, and we'll return to that issue. But Skip, um, uh, let me take advantage of the fact that you've edited two books for the Champlain Society now. And can you just give our audience a brief summary of the process that you went through to edit such primary sources? And in your view, what's the lasting contribution of such edited studies to our understanding of Canadian history? Okay, for the first part, first part is quite mechanical. You have to transcribe the records. And they were voluminous. Uh, let's say an average week in the Kelsey Journal, I would estimate, would probably take a page, page and a half. In other words, we're talking about paragraph entries. Right. James Knight, who was, he had, was a senior man. He had been on the governing committee of the company in London before he comes out as a director, uh, as he comes out as a post manager at York Factory. And Knight was inclined to tell everybody what he thought about everything. So in case of James Knight, sometimes a daily entry could be two, three pages. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then you have to get used to the handwriting. Right. <laughs> and then you have to get used to, like, Kelsey has a, a, a famous about four-line entry in Cree, and it took a linguist to figure out what that was about. And he was very helpful to me when I was working on this project. Uh, so... That it's mechanical, but it's a little bit more than that, right? And you have to know. I had to get familiar with the nautical terminology of the time because Kelsey's background shows up in his journal. Some of the expressions, like he will say at the end of the day, he'll say, We turn to. And I couldn't figure what the heck is that all about? And then I was, you know, reading around in the nautical stuff. And we turn to is at the end of this, when you're sailing on a course at the end of the day, if you want to anchor, you turn into the wind. And then the ships, you know, sailors would know when you turn into the wind, the ship stops and you drop the anchor and that's that. <laughs> so at the end of the day on his on his inland journal, his journal to the north and his first journal to the interior, he'll often say, we turn to. <laughs> so if you don't know his nautical background, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> and uh, so that, there's, there's fun little things like that. So even in the, even in the more the mechanical side of things, you know, you, these questions come up. And then the second phase would be, since I, as I said, I was interested uh, by the, and one of the reasons I waited till I did is when I first read the Kelsey papers, when I was a graduate student, I didn't know enough about native history or the anthropology or the archaeology or even the general history of the fur trade to, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done a decent job of editing those back then. But then I used that knowledge in trying to decide again, as we were talking about what would both a specialized reader and a, and, a, and, a, and a, say, an educated general reader who would want to read these things, what kind of additional information would they need to understand what the journal is saying or what the journal is describing? And so I edited it not from the point of view of political or constitutional historian as the first edition had been done, but as I said, from the point of view of a historical geographer with a lot of training in anthropology and archaeology, because those were my sub-majors as a graduate student. So that's mostly what my, I guess what the editors call it, the editorial apparatus, the footnotes and all that. And there are a lot of them, as you know. <laughs> um, I, I thought probably if I collected all the footnotes, there's probably a book interested in the footnotes and the introduction, which it is. So 
The second phase for me was adding the information to help the reader figure out what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, who's what native groups are coming down, where do they come from, where did, you know, what was the nature of the terrain they passed over, and, and the various comments that are made about native people from time to time in the Kelsey journals, you know, why does he say what he says, or what does this tell us about indigenous relations with Europeans and other indigenous people with each other at the time. So that's pretty much it, I think. Right. What's the usefulness of this kind of what I would call very heavy scholarly editing of original material to our knowledge of Canadian history, do you think? Well, I was thinking about that. And most people will know about Kelsey. I mean, a lot of things in Western Canada are named after him, given that he was, you know, during the colonial phase and uh, prior to the increasing interest in indigenous contributions and names of things. Uh, so he's a, he's a known figure and the fur trade is generally known. But most people, all they're getting is the generalized overview, often with several layers of interpretation on it. But I think the crucial thing is if you really want to get a feel for the fur trade, the, the, the advantage of the post journals is it can't be beat because even though now we're very much and finally there's a lot of emphasis on the indigenous voice in the history of the country which is very important it's a great contribution but there is the there will always be the european side of that early story too and uh that comes from these kinds of records and the beauty of these records uh is that they're, we're talking about records that are over 300 years old now. But it gives us day-to-day -day look at the life of people as lived rather than as generalized. And I know it's pretty hard to sit down and read these journals from end to end. In fact, I wouldn't recommend it. I tell my friends, some of whom are interested in reading these things, better just to say if you're living in the month of June, pick up the journals for June and read what's going on and, and you know read it that way don't try and do it in all one sit <laughs> you know develop a strategy maybe a week at a time or at the same time of the year or start with your birthday or whatever get into it that way and then you you, you you'll get things out of it you won't get out of any any historical you know essay written by a, a historian because they can't go into that kind of detail <laughs> But I think the detail is absolutely essential. You know, like what, when, when, when they talk about their experience of winter, for example, you know, like there were sometimes two or three weeks they couldn't go outside. It was so cold. And it wasn't just too cold to go outside for the Europeans, for the Native people as well. And, those, and winter was often starvation time. And so and you, you get the sense of tension that, that goes on there. Uh, and you also get this... You, you, there's a process starting to take place here. When the Europeans built the trading post in indigenous territory, it had a fundamental effect on the traditional and European economies. Uh, and that comes through in the journals as well. Right. Well, in 1689, Kelsey traveled north of the Churchill River, and this basically his first inland trip. Can you describe the area that he covered in that journey and some of the more interesting observations that he made in his journal during that trip? 
Well, that was one of his first trips, and the journals are not as detailed as Inland Journey to the Prairies was. Um, and there's some speculation about that he may have made notes on that one and then wrote that journal up subsequently. But anyway, what's interesting about it, it's our first recorded uh, experience of a European traveling from the York factory sits right on the uh, edge of the northern boreal forest and the tundra environment, which is an Arctic environment, which is at the exact coastal area, the beaches along the western Hudson's Bay are tundra. And then he, then the fort itself is actually in uh, the northern boreal forest, which is a lot of stunted trees and bushland and so on. And he travels northward out of that into the Arctic environment, which is largely devoid of trees. And it's a what geologists call it kind of a periglacial environment. It's, it's permanently frozen. It's, it's in the permafrost area. So he gives us one of our first accounts of, of traveling through that kind of countryside, which I thought was kind of interesting. And it's very different. He looked at, juxtaposed that to his journal to to Saskatchewan. It's 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 a, you get a you get a picture of two or three different kinds of geographies through those journals there. Uh, and even though it wasn't the main subject to your book, his his exploration in the sort of the what we call the prairies or the Great Plains and Saskatchewan today. What was the purpose of that journey inland from Hudson Bay? Well, Hudson's Bay Company Post, uh, York Factory or York Fort, uh, was it became the very early on it became a major depot of trade for Western Interior of Canada. Native groups started coming down from remarkable distances, as far as I can tell, probably from as far away as Alberta to present-day Alberta, which is a long, long way to come by canoe. In fact, some of these groups it took them two years to do a complete round trip. Um, but it was also becoming clear very early on to the Hudson's Bay direct uh, post managers at York Factory that uh, that middle native middlemen, these Cree, were controlling the trade, and they were they were limiting access of other groups to the post. So one of the purposes of Kelsey's trip to the interior was trying to make contact with some of these groups in the plains areas that they'd heard about. Suan speakers like the Assiniboine, uh, they uh, they wanted to draw those people down to the fort to deal with them directly because the company thought it was in its economic interest because middlemen are raising the price of furs and in turn raising the price of goods to the groups to the interior. And in Hudson's Bay Company, one of the things that drove their westward expansion eventually is to try and get around these native middlemen, they never succeed. First, further, further they move in later on, the more and more different groups take over the position. But anyway, that was the per- main purpose of Kelsey's trip. Now, that's another interesting one from a geographer's perspective because he tra- travels through the southern boreal forest, this, the transitional forest parkland zone, then through the parkland area of the, bordering the prairies and out into the open prairies just west of Touchwood Hills area in Saskatchewan. So here you get Again, you get a look at all these different environmental zones at that time and who was there and what the native economies were like there. And uh, it's it's a pretty remarkable trip. And he, this is one that the first journal he wrote, strangely, nobody can figure out why he wrote it in a rhymed verse. 
uh, which a lot of people made fun of and joked about. But actually, even in there, there's important stuff because that's in one where he he mentions his loneliness when he the party he was traveling with he got separated from and he was all well, suddenly he was all alone in the middle probably somewhere around the Paw Saskatchewan or something. He was all by himself and he was you know, was clearly a little bit on the panicky side. And then they he connects with him again. He's quite relieved. Uh, but anyway, so then they travel up the up the uh, into the into the open parklands and grasslands. So uh, and that's where he's famous for being the first one to describe Buffalo. Now, what about his account of uh, indigenous beliefs and superstitions and his dictionary of what he called Hudson Bay Indian language? You've already talked about this a bit, but maybe you could go a little bit further about his own relationship with the indigenous people he needed. You described how he, in a sense, learned what he needed to learn to advance his own career. But it strikes me maybe that there was also on top of that some curiosity, but maybe I'm wrong. No, he did. He was curious with native people about native people. For example, uh, the religious aspect of their life. Uh, but that what becomes clear about Kelsey, and this is something that was not discussed in the in the early edition, because they didn't have his later papers. Is I was surprised to discover in editing those his correspondence with particularly Richard Staunton, who was a fellow post commander at the time that Kelsey was in command at York Factory. And it becomes very clear that Kelsey was an ardent Anglican or Church of England. Uh, and as I said, the St. Alphine Church in, in uh Greenwich has a memorial to him because he was a parishioner there. But and he was he was in completely intolerant to other sects of Christianity, especially loathed Catholicism. And I think he was uh, I think he was religiously intolerant. And so he and he and I think in that sense he regards native religion as mere superstition. Basically, he. He doesn't take it too seriously. But on the other hand, um, I think he knows it's important to Native people, so he's willing to tolerate it to that extent. But I don't, he, I don't think he was capable of actually believing or other religious systems were as significant as his particular version of Christianity was. So in that sense, I think he had a closed mind when it came to trying to understand that aspect of their life. But I think in all the other areas, he there was a pragmatic interest, and I think he also was interested in them. Right. Now, uh, what are his journals on wintering at Hayes River in 1694 and 1696 tell us about his personality, his ambitions, his relations with his employer at the time? I don't think they tell us as much as I would like them to. He does what he needs to do to get along. He does make it clear that he has an ambition. He's While he's there, he volunteers to go to the interior when the offer is made. Uh, the assumption is that during this period of time, he didn't like the disciplinary life of the trading post. And uh, I'm not so sure about that because, again, he grew up in a naval tradition. He would have learned to respect commands, the authoritarian structure. And then later on, when he's a commander, he's a pretty harsh one. 
I would say it's one of the harsher ones that I've run across in the Bay Records, and I've read an awful lot of those records over the years. Right. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm not it, – it, 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 this is one of the frustrations with Kelsey. He doesn't quite tell us enough. Those journals do give us one of our first glimpses of what it's like to winter at York Factory or York Fort. It becomes the York Factory later on. Uh, the problems of getting food, things like that, are all there. And his, the menacing of the French, because they're a problem during this period. English French rivalries in the base spill over, and, and York Fort is, you know, the English build it, the French take it over, the English get it back, and the French get it back again. And they don't take permanent control until 1714. So you get glimpses of the, the Bayside expression of ongoing European rivalries in those journals, too. Right. Now, in part three of the book, you present us with uh, sort of, in a sense, uh, why he left the Hudson Bay Company. But before that, you discuss uh, the fact that he was deputy governor and then a governor responsible for the company's most important post. How did these high positions change Kelsey and what do these journals reveal about his leadership style before his departure from the company, well, I should mention that he, he was deputy deputy at York from 1714 to 17. But even before that, and when he prior to the, re, the retaking of York Factory by the company in 1714, they had mostly operated in James Bay, and, and Kelsey had served there. And before he leaves James Bay, he also becomes commander for a year of Fort Albany, which was the most important fort on that side of the bay uh, so he's had some some experience beforehand and so when he comes to york factory he's now in command he it's very clear that he expects his men to do as he commands and when they don't and when, when he has two or three occasions there what he basically call would call kind of almost a mutiny of some of the men and he disciplines them with pretty severe lashings in fact, there are more lashings in those journals of him as commander than any other journals that I've read either. So he was a, whether that means he was a harsh commander or that he was just used to the naval tradition of that's how you disciplined your men. But times that he makes his, um, he makes those two voyages northward in 17, uh, uh, 19 and 21 up the coast, to, up all the way up to Chesterfield Inlet. And when he's away and he leaves his men in command, he, he points three men in command, not one. But he also gives them orders that if the men don't behave as they're supposed to, then give them the lash. So I would say he was a, a firm, if not stern, commander. He, ne he never, never lets on about his relations to men except those that cross him. You mentioned this earlier, that he was basically fired from the Hudson's Bay Company, but can you describe what happened and why it happened? Well, while he was serving under Knight, uh, one of the first things that, uh, that they learned was that to the far west, northwest somewhere, there were what the natives described as shiny metal. And of course, this perked the interests of both Knight and Kelsey and the company. And near as we can tell, they were talking probably about native copper, because in the far northwest, copper knife people, as they were called then, lived there. And there, there was a long standing trade of copper along the Arctic shores 
between groups and down the, down to the southward. So this would be what these native groups were talking on. These would be some of these groups that are coming probably from at least the far reaches of the upper Saskatchewan River and probably the uh, Athabasca River area. So both Kelsey and Knight wanted to find those mineral deposits. And that's one of the reasons that Knight leaves in 1717. He goes back, convinces the Hudson's Bay Company to send him out on a tragic voyage to search for a Northwest Passage and that goal. Well, Kelsey, who assumes Knight's command for five years, he's also determined to find this. So he starts doing these explorations up the up the north up west northwest coast of Hudson's Bay, trying to find a northwest passage, and he wanted to build a post north of Churchill. The company was dead set against it because they thought this was ludicrous because they already had enough hardship at you know, Fort Churchill, and trying to build something in what was clearly an Arctic environment, as they would have known from Kelsey's own journals, would be a real real risk. Uh, and they were afraid that he was not going to follow their instructions and in, 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 in sort of limiting himself to saying coastal voyages by ships. So they basically relieved him for that reason. They figured that he wasn't going to follow their directives because he was determined to find these resources. And so they pulled him back and he gets back and he, and he, he starts writing up his papers to defend himself. And that's where, where, where the papers probably first originated. And then uh, the, his own personal papers, the ones that are not in the company archives, um, the ones that were published earlier. Uh, he's working on those, and then he dies in 1714. Right. In one sentence, what do you think Kelsey will be remembered for, let's say, 100 years from now? I suspect it will be a little a little less for the the firsts that people focus on, like the first to the Saskatchewan, the first to here, first there. I think he'll be remembered for the record that he kept of initial contact with European uh, native people in Western Canada, and that will always be of interest. And there is no other there is no other day to day record of that experience from either side other than his own. Now his is a European side, but as I said, you can get glimpses of native life as well. So uh, I think the record that he kept will be his main legacy as it is now. Well, thank you so much, Skip. And I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. It's good fun. Thanks. My guest today was Arthur J. Ray. He is the editor of From the Frozen Sea to Buffalo Country, The Life and Times of Henry Kelsey of the Hudson's Bay Company, 1687 to 1724, which is volume 83 of the publications of the Champlain Society. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. 
This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We also want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on June 20th, 2023. This podcast is supported by our producer, Jessica Schmidt, and the University of Toronto Press Journal team. 